Good morning. Once again, my name is Natalie Cole from the marketing team at Dickerson Insurance Services. We're very happy you could join us for today's webinar titled Self-Funded Health Benefits. Like I said, that's my, my name is Natalie and that's a picture of me. Um, if you have any questions in regarding to any technological issues that you might have during this webinar, um, that is my phone number, but you can best reach me at nataliec at dickerson-group.com. And of course, like I mentioned earlier, this course is titled Self-Funded Health Benefits and has been approved by the California Department of Insurance for one credit hour. Our CE presentations are recorded and copies of both the recording and the slide deck will, will be available for you within 24 to 48 hours after, today, after today's presentation. We report CE credits to the Department of Insurance within two working days of the presentation. We have also been instructed to ask polling questions throughout the presentation. In this case, it will be three polling questions. In order to receive CE credit or to be eligible to receive CE credit, you must answer all three polling questions. Your responses are recorded and in order to answer the polling questions, it is advised, strongly advised actually, that you use a computer instead of a cell phone. When you use a cell phone, it tends not to record your answer, so keep that in mind. And lastly, but not least, if you have any questions, please type your questions in the chat box in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen, and we will answer all of the questions at the conclusion of today's presentation. Now, for today's presenter, Mr. David Fear, who is a 43-year veteran of the employee benefits industry, who specializes in alternative funding, flexible benefits, and group purchasing arrangements. He is the managing partner of Shepler and Fear, a division of Dickerson Insurance Services and Alera Group Company. He is also the former member of the advisory board of the UC Davis School of Healthcare Management and an instructor for the Insurance School of the Pacific. He is also the past president of the California and the National Associations of Health Underwriters, AHU. And finally, he is a 2015 recipient of the NAHU Herald R. Gordon Award as Health Insurance Person of the Year. Dave currently oversees the Alternative Funding Division of Dickerson Insurance Services located in Roseville, California. So Dave, such an impressive bio as always. How are you this morning? I'm great, great. Thanks, Natalie, I appreciate that. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Okay, my headset's working then. All right, well, great. Thank you for the intro and uh, good morning, everyone. And welcome to another uh, Dave's Corner. and Today, uh, as Natalie has just indicated, we're going to be talking about self-funding. Uh, it's a one-hour CE course, and uh, I think we'll cover just about everything in about 50 minutes and then have some time for uh, Q&As at the end. So uh, I'll get, get going here. I always like to start out this discussion uh, with a kind of an overview, the big picture of, of what, um, uh, what alternative funding is about. And, so if you've ever attended one of my other seminars, you'll know that I use this this um, graphic to kind of explain uh, what alternative funding looks like. And and as you can see on the on the far uh, on the far left, uh, all in blue is what a fully insured plan looks like in terms of the insurer risk or reward. The insurance company issues a policy; they're at risk for all of the claims, and they're uh, the reward if the claims are certainly lower than uh, expected uh, to make some money. And then on way over on the far right, you'll see a self-insured plan that 
the employer sets up um, and, and the employer is responsible for all of the, the risk and uh, certainly all of the reward if, if, uh, if their claims turn out to be lower than uh, what they expect. Uh, that's a self-insured plan that has no stop loss coverage and we'll talk more about stop loss. So there, there in the middle you have uh, three uh, types of plans that we talk about, group HRAs or partial self-funding, uh, level funded plans, which are a type of self-funding and, and basically splits the, uh, the profit 50-50 uh, with the employer and the insurance carrier. And then self-funded plans with stop loss and self-funded plans through a benefit captive. And we're gonna fo uh, focus mostly on the self-funded plans with stop loss today and, and explain that to you. Um, I think it's important, uh, and, and there'll be a polling question on this, so, so take note of this, but a little history about self-funding. Um, self-funding of group health benefits has been around since the 1950s when Congress amended the uh, US uh, IRS tax code uh, and it included Section 501C9, which, which basically said if an employer can set up a self-insured arrangement and uh, fully tax deduct the contributions they make into it and the benefits paid to employees out of this type of an arrangement are also considered to be um, uh, tax-free benefits as well. Um, Self-funding really gained a lot of popularity in 1974 following passage of ERISA, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, which clarified that self-funded employer plans were exempt from state regulation. There was a lot of controversy back then. These, these uh, uh, big companies would set up these self-insured plans or, and um, turn around and the states were saying, no, you gotta pay premium taxes to us and you gotta follow our, our benefits uh, laws and all this and that. But, ERISA overrode all of that state business and basically said you're exempt from state regulation. Interestingly enough, in 1982, the Reagan administration under uh, Secretary of Labor uh, Elizabeth Dole uh, moved the regulation of multiple employer welfare arrangements or MIWAs back to the states. So these self-insured uh, MIWAs, which had multiple employers involved, uh, were moved back to the states to be regulated, but but it left single employer uh, plans, uh, self-funded plans, uh, to continue to be regulated under state law. So that was the, the you know that was uh, you know eight years after uh, ERISA was passed. So there was uh, obviously some issues about MIWAs and and whether or not they could be correctly regulated. And that's a story for another day. I will tell you that some states have tried to regulate self-funded plans by imposing rules on the on the sale of stop loss insurance to quote small employers we have that we have that law here in california and we'll chat a little bit about that in a minute um, but recent uh, federal regulations allowed for self-funded association health plans but still left the regulation of those plans to the states many of which forbid self-funded versions of of association health plans or or miwas so uh, and that's a good example here in California. However, uh, politically, uh, don't expect Congress to eliminate the self-funded option because frankly, they wanna make sure that employers continue to offer benefits. So there's enough uh, people in the, in the center and the right in Congress who don't want uh, single payer 
but they do want the employers of, of all sizes to uh, provide benefits and uh, they're not going to eliminate the self-funded option uh, as you know as a disincentive for employers to quit doing that so uh, i think that's important that you you keep that in mind let me uh, touch on self-funding in the affordable care act or obamacare as some people like to call it i would tell you that for the most part the uh, the affordable care act left self-funded plans alone it did not um there, there's some misunderstanding there that it, it basically opened up the market for self-funding. I wouldn't say it really opened up the market. Uh, they left, for the most part, self-funded plan regulation alone. They didn't make a lot of changes. Uh, they did impose uh, federal reinsurance and PCORI uh, taxes, you probably heard of that, uh, on self-funded plans. So a self-funded plan does have to pay those taxes as they apply. Um, and that's the first time we had a national tax of that nature uh, apply to that. Um, they did insist that non-grandfathered plans uh, must provide preventive care services at 100%. So they did make that change uh, to ERISA that said, if you're offering um, a self-funded health plan, you must uh, provide preventive care services at 100%, which is similar to what all fully insured plans have to do. I will tell you that the feds uh, are looking at self-funded employers more closely in terms of non-discrimination. They, they, they inserted some non-discrimination rules in, in the Internal Revenue Code, and they are looking at self-funded employers to make sure that the plans that they offer are uh, not discriminatory. And that would mean that you, you, you have the same basic plan that's offered to all employees. You don't have uh, special benefits for um, executives and then uh, a lower benefit plan to non-executives. That, that would be considered discriminatory. So that's, uh, that's an issue. Uh, Self-funded plans must issue an annual 1094B or 1095B. Uh, these are the same reports that insurance companies have to issue. And um, so they have to issue those same reports both to the IRS and to individual members who are uh, participating in a self-funded plan. And this would be self-funded plans of all sizes, not, not just large ones, but all sizes. Um, plans that have 100 or more members must still file Form 5500, which is the annual uh, report of the, of the plan. That hasn't changed. Um, there, there continues to be some danger that uh, Congress may try to limit uh, the employer-employee tax exemption for benefits in general, but not for self-funding specifically. And and to uh, to my Republican uh, colleagues out there who think that if the uh, Congress and the Senate change over to um, uh, Republican control in this upcoming election, uh, keep in mind that it was a Republican who uh, adv advanced the notion that the employer-employee tax exemption should be uh, to go away. So this isn't necessarily a, a Democrat idea. It's frankly an idea that had come back from the, from the right side of the aisle. So that's, uh, that's something you need to be aware of. Um, states with ex successful exchanges like California did pass some protective legislation. Uh, and here in California, that was Senate Bill 161, which had the effect to discourage small employers from entering into self-funded uh, plans. Uh, they focus on the sale of the stop-loss insurance to small employers 
in order to keep them out of self-funding and keep them in the insured pool. Uh, I, I get what they were trying to do. Unfortunately, it, it, it didn't work very well because employers are still uh, shifting to uh, the self-funded model in a, in a big way. So now we come to polling question number one of three. Uh, what year was ERISA signed into law? Was it A, 1965? Was it B, 1974? Or was it C, 1982? And uh, we'll, we've got, what, uh, about a minute to, to answer that, Natalie? Is that correct? That's correct. Let's see, I've got my, let's see, my, I've got my little minute song here. How do we do it? Everybody uh, complete the poll in one yes. minute? Yes, 90% voted 1974. Oh, very good. Everybody's paying attention. I'm very proud of you. Thank you very much. That'll no be the toughest, uh, toughest question on the uh, test today. All right, so let's, uh, let's move along and, and deal with the, uh, the basics of self-funding. And, you know, um, I've been doing this a long time. And, and frankly, I, I, I try to look at this and make it as simple as possible. So Really, uh, when an employer sets up a self-funded plan, there are three basic components. Uh, one component here in red uh, is stop-loss insurance coverage. They generally will purchase some sort of stop-loss insurance. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, they will also uh, pay a, a small amount for administrative services. That's in blue on the little pie chart. And then the um, the, the, the bulk of their their costs will be in, in their aggregate claims fund, their paid claims. So these are the three basic costs in a self-funded plan. And let's, um, let's talk uh, a little bit more about those. With regard to stop-loss insurance, there are two types of uh, stop-loss insurance coverage that a self-funded plan uh, can purchase. Uh, not all of them purchase both, but uh, many of them do. Uh, some of them just purchase one and, and, and not, maybe not the other. There is specific stop-loss coverage, which protects the plan from any large catastrophic claims on any one person. So a, a, a typical self, uh, specific stop-loss deductible, which is also referred to as a, the specific retention, might be set at about 10% of the annual claims fund. So for example, if an employer has an annual paid claims fund of $500,000, uh, 10% of that is a $50,000, and that might be the specific stop-loss deductible that they purchase. 
there's no rule that says that they can't buy a lower specific stop loss or a higher one, uh, or that they even purchase specific stop loss. But um, that's, that's just kind of a rule of thumb that we've learned over the years. The second part of stop loss is aggregate stop loss. And that covers and protects the uh, plan uh, from overall high claims for the group as a whole. In other words, it's like an umbrella policy that says when, you're, when your paid claims exceed this much as a group as a whole, uh, the insurance company steps in and, and um, uh, pays the claims or reimburses the plan. Uh, a typical aggregate stop loss deductible, and that's also referred to as the aggregate attachment point, uh, is set at about 120% of expected paid claims. So, for example, uh, if a group has determines that they're going to have $500,000 a year of expected paid claims, 120% of that is $600,000, and that's the aggregate attachment point. Uh, that's where the um, employer, excuse me, the uh, insurance company would kick in and, and begin to reimburse the employer for any claims that exceeded. 600,000. Uh, you can buy some aggregate stop loss policies at 110% uh, exposure. Uh, here in California, the law is that you can't be lower than 110%. Uh, there are some that have uh, higher exposure, 125, 130. I've seen some at 150%. And so um, that's uh, that just keep in mind that that aggregate attachment point is really uh, the, the coverage that says you, you can set a, an upfront amount to say, this is how much total claims exposure we'll have. So a very important point about the stop loss uh, policies are the contracts that are issued. And let's talk a little bit about that. The stop loss contracts vary by carrier and the options that they have. Uh, the most important feature I will tell you uh, involves what's called incurred and paid, and these are important legal terms. So an, a, a, the, the insurance company might issue uh, a specific stop loss policy that has a 12-12 or a 12-month incurred, a 12-month paid contract uh, for claims. What that means is, is that they cover all claims that are incurred in the 12 months of the policy but the claims, uh, but the claims that are covered, uh, have to be paid in that same 12 months. That's the second 12. So the first 12 is the incurred period of time. The second 12 is the paid period of time. The problem with a 12-12 contract is it does not allow for what we call runoff. There's always, you know, there's always a lag in claims. You know, somebody might go into the hospital today but the claim might not be paid for another 30 to 45 days after the hospital you know, issues the bill and there's a, maybe an audit of the bill and this and that. So many insurance carriers now offer what we call 1218 or 1221 or 1224 uh, contracts, which means they cover all claims that are incurred in the 12 months, but they'll pay uh, reimburse for claims that are paid in 18 months, in other words, the 12 months plus a six month uh, runoff or a nine month runoff or a, 20, a 12 month runoff. The point is, is that um, as a broker, you don't wanna, you don't wanna sell a contract to your uh, client that, that may not take into account that you've got this incurred but unreported claims liability. And so 
you need to make sure that what you're buying is is accurate. Um, some stop loss contracts will uh, allow coverage for terminal liability. That's a provision that says if they terminate the contract, they might they might get coverage for so many months after the contract has been um, uh, terminated, and that's called terminal liability, and obviously costs more. Um, then there's the issue of of how claims are paid. Are the do the claims have to be paid by the employer and then sent over to the carrier for reimbursement? And technically, that's what these what these policies do. Versus what we call advanced funding, meaning that that once the employer has satisfied that specific stop loss uh, deductible, um, they then notify the carrier and they notify them in advance, and then the carrier begins to advance them money as those those claims uh, come up for payment. They don't they don't wait around and, and audit the claim. Uh, that's an important feature. Uh, as I talked about uh, the aggregate attachment point, those attachment points can be uh, are generally sold on an annual basis, but you can have some contracts that actually have a monthly attachment point that allows for if, if claims go over a certain amount in a given month that the carrier will step in and, and reimburse the employer after prior month's debits and credits are, are calculated. The minimum attachment point is a is a uh, a term that it's very important, especially if the group is losing members. They may come in and say the uh, attachment point for this group is a million dollars, based on you know uh, 200 people. Um, but if you begin to have layoffs and stuff for whatever reason, uh, the minimum attachment point might be seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And if they fall, you know, even further than that, they could get caught uh, on on that provision that the minimum attachment point is still way too high for based on who's left in the plan. Uh, premiums that you pay can be net or gross of commission. Most of the time they're net of commission, but uh, they could be either way, net or gross. Um, stop loss insurance companies require full disclosure of pre-existing conditions within the group prior to binding coverage. They wanna know if there are people that are in the hospital currently uh, or receiving um, expensive drugs or expected to have you know surgery and all they want full disclosure of those conditions um and if and, and you can get caught in some really uh, bad legal situations if you've not done a good job of getting that disclosure of course not you know not all employers know what's going on with their employees but you have to make an attempt to to find out this stuff and then there are uh, provisions for enrollment variations they they quote you numbers based on, you know, 100 people enrolling. Uh, but if in fact you have 150 people enrolling, that's a that's a 50% change in the in the population. They can change the final rates. Uh, so uh, you got to look at those things. And these are these some of these things are small and and minuscule, but but they are they are important. Um, let me talk for a minute about specific stop loss underwriting. The underwriting that's that's done. Typically, underwriting for specific stop loss is done by the carrier directly uh, or a managing general underwriter, an MGU, or by a captive that might be issuing the, 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 the policy. Uh, the rates for specific stop loss will vary based on the census demographics and, um, you know, the age sex factor, uh, you know, the pop, you know, the percentage of, uh, of 
coverage for uh, dependents versus employees, those kinds of things. And um, sometimes you can see that specific stop loss rates might be loaded for disclosed conditions. Uh, in other words, uh, there's an ongoing condition, an ongoing pregnancy. The carrier might say, okay, we'll issue the contract, but we're going to rate them up, uh, say 10%, because we think that uh, we're going to have to pay for a premature baby claim or something like that. So they, you know, they want to know about that stuff and they can, they can change those rates. Once the rates are enforced, they're enforced, but, but, um, you know, versus what they quote versus what's, what's final can be changed. Um, stop loss, again, coverage, specific stop loss, that ensures the employer's fund. It does not insure the individual member. Stop loss insurance is not health insurance, okay? So uh, you can't expect that if somebody has a million dollar claim that the um, specific stop loss company is gonna step in and pay that claim after the deductible's met. Technically, legally, uh, the, the claim is paid by the employer's self-insured fund, self-funded plan, and the stop loss coverage uh, reinsures the employer's plan. So the, it's a legal term that's very um, important. And then finally, we do see some what's called lasering of specific risks. And lasering is where, you know, I've got a group with 100 people in it, and there's one person that's expected to have a, a fairly large claim next year. And what they'll do, uh, and this is typically done at renewal, not, not in the beginning. They say, look, here's your, here's your renewal. Uh, and and it's, you've got a $50,000 specific stop loss on everybody. However, if you were willing to uh, take a, a laser on this one person that's got uh, ongoing claims that are going to be fairly significant um, if we if we put a $75,000 deductible on them your rates will be lower as a whole so there are pros and cons to lasering and um, this is this is done more frequently by carriers at the renewal as opposed to upfront um, then with regard to the aggregate stop loss remember the aggregate covers the claims as a whole for the group uh, the aggregate attachment points can generally be determined by reviewing uh, any one of the following. They, if they can get paid claims history from the employer, uh, that's probably the, the most um, important way to set an aggregate attachment point. And I won't go into the weeds about how that's done. I would just simply tell you that if they know that the employer had $350,000 of claims last year, that they believe that that 350,000 will probably grow to say 400,000 this year with the medical trend. And so they'll set an attachment point based on say 120% of that $400,000 figure, not on the 350,000 figure. So these are, uh, these are important things to know. Um, uh, just a second, okay. Um, or if they don't have claims history, they'll they'll look at premium history. If you can say you're you're in a fully insured plan and we want to look back on your your premium rate history for the last three years, uh, please um, uh, you know provide that in light of claims history they may not have. Uh, some will rely on what they call a background or prescription drug history of the group, and uh, I'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, and that, uh, and then finally, there are some that will set the attachment point based on 
the collection of individual health risk assessments. And I want to talk a little bit about health risk assessments. It's not real popular to talk about, but I think you, you need to deal with it because this is a modern age where, you know, when you're talking about self-funding, you're not talking about something, you know, out of the out of the can, uh, off the shelf, a fully insured deal. It's it's a very different world. Um, and let's talk about small groups. You know, a small employer with under 100 lives probably are, are not going to get claims experience here in California. Uh, there's no law that requires it, and the carriers are not giving it out. So it, it they might require that that small employer group uh, do a health risk assessment or individual health questionnaires on um, uh, on on the members who are planning to enroll. That is done on on members who will enroll for coverage, but it's not required of the waivers or those who are going to enroll in a different plan. Um, so it's just to the people that would would uh, enroll in the self-funded plan only. This health risk assessment is a it's a confidential process. It's generally done by a third party who does not disclose specific medical conditions to the employer, but does aggregate the information so that a risk profile of the group as a whole can be reviewed uh, and, and looked at. And I will tell you that, that asking these health questions is not prohibited under the Affordable Care Act, because this is being done for a self-funded plan, not a fully insured plan. So um, it's, it's a different rule if you're self-funded. The assessment will, will ask questions which focus on current medical services used, uh, such as expected surgeries or prescription drugs or maybe recent lab and diagnostic testing. So it'll ask questions about those things in order to try and determine just where the group as a whole is at with regard to their health claims. And these assessments can be done by paper. It can be done through an online uh, confidential uh, uh, online portal or they can be telephonic. Um, we like the telephonic ones because they get done faster and they're more accurate. Somebody you know, fills out a paper form or does an online deal and they say, yeah, I have a prescription drug, but they don't indicate what the drug is and what their dosage is. Where on a, on a telephonic deal, the person taking the information says, I, I need to know um, uh, the name of the drug, sir, and, and your dosage. And, and that's all they that's all they ask in that regard. So the question that a lot of people is, well, why use risk assessments? Well, again, uh, I think risk assessments levels the playing field for small employers who are locked out of self-funding because they can't produce credible claims experience. So it gives them an opportunity to say, okay, I I, I really would like to look at self-funding, but but um, I, I can't get an aggregate stop loss quote in, unless I provide this this information. Uh, second, it, I think it helps the employer make an informed decision about whether or not they should even enter into an alternative funding arrangement. I have a group that that all of their people went out and they filled out the uh, forms and the carrier came back and said this this group has some real um, medical issues, some real problems. Um, we're going to have to rate them up substantially over what we would normally do this at. Um, and, you know, you need to ask the employer whether or not they want to do this. And you go back to the employer and say, yeah, you're going to get rated up 50% because you've got some severe uh, issues here. And, and the employer says, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I, I, maybe I better stay fully insured because I, 
I, I don't want to do this myself. And so I get that. Uh, on the other hand, they may get a very favorable answer that says, hey, your group's a very low risk, very healthy. Um, you know, if you, you're ever going to do self-funding, now is a good time because you've got the, the population that shows that uh, they, they are um, very low risk. So with that information, though, the employers can better design their benefits to focus on specific conditions present within the group. For example, if if they say you've got a, a substantial percentage of your people that are they're diabetic or that have cardiac problems or other types of problems, then then the employer can sit down and, and design their plan to kind of help in, in those cases or or have uh, more preventive care uh, in, in place. So the employers then get a start on managing their risk. Uh, if they know that they've got, for example, uh, some uh, an employee or two, they don't know who, but uh, that has cardiac issues, uh, they, they can bring in a disease management uh, a specialist to help, help uh, get their conditions uh, under control and, and what have you, or implement some wellness uh, plans. So, they can be proactive rather than reactive. And, 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 you know, I look at this the same way that employers who buy workers' compensation insurance, you know, what they try to do is they buy workers' comp insurance and then they get a big rate increase because they have claims. So the first thing they do is they go out and they, they put a safety program in place so that the workers won't get hurt at work. And that lowers their workers' comp claims, which then lowers their workers' comp premium. It's the same way in, in a health plan. If you if you know what some of the conditions are that are that are driving up healthcare uh, claim cost, then you can design your plan to attack those things and and manage them better. So that's why I think risk assessments they get a bad rap because nobody wants to ask health questions because it's a guaranteed issue market, but it's not guaranteed issue in the self-funded field. Okay, you can be turned down, and these risk assessments are a good way to help manage your plan and, and know know what's going on. So that's that's the stop loss portion of this. You know, they what the what the products are and, and what the um uh the rules are with stop loss. So the second part of of uh, uh the self-funded plan involves plan administration. I'm gonna go go through this pretty fast because I, I know we're we're pressed for time, but plan administration services can be provided by either an insurance company under what they call ASO or administrative services uh, only contract or by a licensed bonded third party administrator or TPA. Um, regardless of who it is, the administrator should provide at the very least these items, you know, claims adjudication services. They need to pay, came, play, uh, pay claims quickly and accurately. Um, they need to maintain plan member eligibility. They don't want to be paying claims on people that aren't eligible to be in the plan. Um, they, they generally are going to handle provider relations. If there's a, a disagreement uh, with a, a billing party or the doctor's office or the hospital, uh, they handle that. They handle member customer service. You know, somebody calls in and they need some help with a, with a claim or, or something, that's who they call is the, the TPA. Um, they should be providing uh, periodic claim utilization reports that show how the, the claim money is being spent and where it's being spent. Um, they need to provide financial reports on a timely basis. You know what their what their total uh, claims fund uh, payments are and, and their stop loss premiums and what have you. Um, 
they need to coordinate uh, benefit payments. If there's another party such as Medicare or Medicaid or another carrier, uh, people have duplicate service uh, coverage, they need to go after uh, benefit payments from those other parties to reimburse the plan. Uh, most TPAs will either provide case management or utilization review services either in-house or they'll contract with an outside service to provide those services. Uh, they generally are going to generate plan documents that are needed, and there are at least three different plan documents that are needed in a self-funded plan. They will perform claim audits to periodically look and make sure that claims are being paid correctly um, or submit to claim audits. Um, they will provide summaries of, of plan finances and usage at year's end. They will coordinate stop-loss insurance uh, claims and reimbursement. They'll generate a monthly billing and, and uh, fund uh, a collection or payment of, of uh, expenses. And they'll generally work with the employer to set up uh, the correct banking and uh, funding arrangements. Um, there are some pros and cons of contracting with an insurance company as an ASO or using a third party administrator. I'm not saying one is better than the other, but these are issues that people tend to look at. Uh, insurers obviously are more popular with very large national employers in multiple states. It's a lot easier for them to contract with one of the BUCAs, and the BUCAs are the Blues, United, Cigna, and Aetna. Those are, those are the, the BUCAs, as we call them. So um, large national employers like to contract with those insurance companies because they're well-known throughout the country. Uh, insurers have more name recognition with providers and members than does a TPA. You go into you go, you know, you're on vacation in Montana, you have to go to the local hospital for a, uh, you're in an accident, you show them an ID card and it's got that, uh, you know, United or Blue Cross or Cigna or Aetna logo on it. You're not going to have a problem. On the other hand, you say, yeah, I'm, I'm covered uh, under the ABC uh, insurance fund uh, and, uh, and the administrator is uh, XYZ company out of uh, Salt Lake City. They go, I've never heard of XYZ and I haven't heard of ABC. So, you know, you need something else. So, you know, they look at that. I will tell you that TPAs typically are smaller and they're less expensive uh, and they're licensed and bonded, meaning that uh, they're handling your, your claims money and, and they're bonded if they make mistakes and, and, uh, and that's good. It's a lot easier to fire a TPA if you're not happy with their um, service than it is to uh, fire an insurance company or ASO. Uh, I just I just tell you, having been through this and in, in my years of experience, that people will change TPAs if they don't feel like they're getting uh, the right service or or um, uh, you know provide the the right customer service, especially. So it's easier to fire them. The insurance companies have legacy claim systems that have been around for a long time that are very sophisticated, and they provide a lot more in-house services as opposed to TVA, uh, TPAs who typically have invested in, in, in more modern claim systems or maybe have developed their own claim system. Uh, TPAs will contract out for some services as utilization review and case management, et cetera. Um, there is a question about there being a conflict of interest between the risk taker, the insurance company, and the administrator if both are provided by a single entity. If you've got the insurance company who's the risk taker, stop loss insurance, and they're also the administrator, is there a conflict of interest there to 
you know, avoid claims that uh, might might need to be covered. And that's a that's an argument that goes on and on and back and forth. I, I would say that consultants can and should assist in a request for proposals for ASO or TPA services. So you get an outside party uh, to do that. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Are the fees charged, uh, are, are, are the ASO or the TPA fees, are they being charged as a percentage of claims, which is not good, a percentage of savings, which can be good? Uh, what are they doing about prescription drug rebates, which is can turn into some big money? Are they offsetting their fees against those rebates versus charging a per employee per month fee? So these are things that, that uh, employers need to think about uh, in that. Um, so part three, the, the biggest part of the self-funded plan are the healthcare benefit payments. This is the, uh, again, the largest expense in a self-funded plan, as I showed you before. It's a variable cost that can be managed because claims come in, but uh, you, you, know, you, can, you can have a big effect on what claims are covered. So you have a plan document and the plan document is very specific. These are the things that are covered by our plan. These are the things that are excluded by our plan. These are the things that are covered but have limitations in the plan. Uh, clearly, uh, you know, you have a, a plan document that says, you know, what's the deductible, the coinsurance, you know, et cetera. What are the benefits, uh, a summary, you know, the summary of plan benefits. Um, and, and most self-funded plans have very flexible plan designs, meaning that, you know, there's, there's not a, a standard plan design that they use. Uh, most plans will offer a traditional PPO or EPO plan using a network or uh, either uh, on a PPO basis for in and out of network or an EPO basis, which kind of mirrors uh, an HMO in the sense that it's a self-funded HMO. You only use network providers. Uh, there are a number of plans now coming up that are indemnity plans. You can use any doctor or hospital provider that you want, but they pay them what's called reference-based pricing. They pay them a, a percentage of Medicare. They might pay them 150 or 175 percent or maybe even 200 percent of what Medicare allows. That's how they define what's a, a reasonable charge. So these indemnity plans are becoming uh, much more popular. Uh, they save a lot of money. We, we see plans that are consumer-directed plans, you know, HSA, HRA, plans that are designed to work with a flexible spending account that's a, a separate deal. You see a lot of wellness incentives and in plans today, uh, trying to, you know, uh, lose weight, stop smoking, you know, um, exercise, et cetera. Um, and, then, and then a big part of it is prescription drugs. You know, today, prescription drugs can, can be a substantial percentage of your paid claims. And by substantial percentage, when I got into this business in, in the late 70s, prescription drugs accounted for maybe 3% of the total plan costs. Today, it's more like um, you know, 15 to 25% of plan costs are spent on prescription drugs. And one thing I know is that the prescription drug manufacturers are now rebating a substantial amount of money uh, to the purchasers. Um, in fact, I was in one forum that uh, it was reported that almost 24% of prescription drug uh, charges now are rebatable back to the, the, the purchaser. So that's a big deal and you have to look at that. The advantage of a self-funded plan is you don't have state premium taxes and you don't have state benefit mandates to 
dictate uh, you know what your plan can can cover or not cover, uh, and you don't pay these premium taxes either. Um, the the, uh, the self-funded plan has to meet the definition of essential benefits and minimum value coverage uh, under the ACA. So that's the mandate that they have. And and as you all know, you know, essential benefits and minimum value coverage are just the absolute minimum required to offer coverage in the United States now. So, so a self-funded plan has to be all of that and generally are all that plus, plus, plus benefits. Um, that plan needs to meet the needs of the workforce. Obviously, it should be designed to, to meet their needs, uh, not the insurance company's needs. Um, therefore, you'll, you'll need some actuarial modeling and most consultants uh, have actuarial assistants that can come in and say, here, we'll do this job of, of presenting, uh, of predicting your claims. And then the, the, the big thing is your claim uh, history is now very transparent. You get claim and utilization reports that help you, the employer, uh, really know and understand how your plan's doing and where your money's being spent. This is a this is a huge deal, and I, uh, you know, I, I I think about companies that spend, you know, you know, a quarter of a million dollars a year on on uh, workers' comp insurance, and they get and they get claim reports uh, from the workers' comp carrier showing. You know what's going on, and yet uh, here in California, typically the carriers don't provide any claims information. Well, if you're in a self-funded plan, you get all that information, and uh, and I think that's important. So let's go with polling question number two of three, uh, and that uh, question is, uh, what accounts for the largest cost within a self-funded plan? Is it a stop-loss insurance premiums? Is it B, administrative fees, or is it C, incurred and paid claims? So I'll get my little, uh, my, my one minute song here again. Let's go. trying to give everybody enough time because I just want to remind everyone that to be eligible for CE credit you have to answer all three polling questions and this is only two of three. One more okay. after this. So how do we look? Okay I'm going to go ahead and close the poll and it looks like do 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 75% voted for incure slash paid claims. Okay. Very good. Good job. Thank you for participating in that. 
Okay, let's move along. So uh, when you, when you uh, every year the Kaiser Family Foundation does polling of employers, uh, surveying of employers throughout the country, and typically uh, they will ask employers who are self-funded uh, why they're self-funding, what what's going on, and these are some of the points that employers will talk about. Say we're in self-funding, and and this is why we we did it. And at the top of the list is their ability to retain surplus and hold their own reserves. So if I'm if I'm putting a million dollars a year into a self-funded plan and I'm paying out, you know, eight hundred thousand dollars in expenses, uh, that two hundred thousand dollar difference is surplus, and that belongs to me, the employer, uh, and 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 it should be allocated to into a reserve fund for incurred and and. Uh, pay, uh, incurred in unpaid claims. So now the employer gets to hold that money. It doesn't belong to the insurance company. And, and that certainly uh, helps the employers uh, with their banker, you know. Uh, employers cite number two, that flexible plan designs that can either duplicate their current benefits or offer options that were not previously available. Um, they, they like the flexibility of, of being able to design their plan customized for them and, and not an off-the-shelf product by an insurance company. Number three is that it avoids those state premium taxes and benefit mandates. We talked about that. Let me tell you, state premium taxes can be very high in some states. Here in California, it's 3.2%. Um, and that, uh, you know, that adds up. That's 3.2% uh, of a million bucks is what? $32,000. And uh, you take that over five or six years and that adds up to a substantial amount of money. They also cite that self-funding works better across state lines. You know, each state has their own insurance laws and rules, and you you try to provide a an insured plan to employees uh, across uh, 50 different states, and they say it's very difficult. So the solution is we'll we'll put in a self-funded plan because we don't have to follow those state rules, and it's a lot easier for us. Uh, they they cite that stop-loss reinsurance is much more affordable than traditional uh, fully insured coverage. It's, it makes uh, the plan safe uh, from large claims, so that's much affordable. They have lower administrative costs, and um, typically what we see in a, in a self-funded plan are the administrative costs that are charged by a TPA are, are lower than, than what the insurance company might charge, but either way, they, they see a lower administrative cost overall. There's more... Um, transparency in healthcare costs. We just talked about that. And what they'll state is that there are some proven long-term results because employers will say, look, now my costs, uh, my, my healthcare uh, spend is in increasing at the rate of inflation rather than healthcare trend, which is two to three times inflation. Um, and now, you know, this year, as you know, inflation is up substantially, but but um, you know, back in the in the 80s and the 90s, where inflation finally got under control, and and it was maybe you know three or four percent a year, and, and actually as recently as just a few years ago, um, that that's much more attractive than having their healthcare spend increase by you know 13, 14 percent a year. So uh, these are the reasons why employers are saying I I, I want to look at self-funding. So if I'm a if I'm a broker, if I'm an advisor, 
you you probably need to have this chart memorized. Okay, this is this is uh, this compares the three funding methods: partial self-funding, which we talk more about in a different presentation, self-funding, and then level funding. And and I like to show this because it's important that you understand. Well, what what are the differences? So right at the front, we say, look, uh, partial self-funding is is more applicable to small employers with who have 10 to 100 employees, whereas self-funding is more applicable to large employers that have 100 or more employees. Um, level funding is kind of a hybrid of, of uh, self-funding and, and uh, fully insured coverage, and that tends to be applicable to mid-sized employers that have 50 to maybe 200 employees. A general description, you know, Partial self-funding is also referred to as a group HRA, which is a combination of a high deductible health plan and a, and a health reimbursement arrangement. Self-funding, as I've described it today, is a standalone combination of stop loss, administration, and pay-as-you-go claims funding. Uh, level funding is, is a package of stop loss insurance, administrative, and an aggregate claims funding where whereby if your claims are lower than the aggregate claims fund, you get a refund back. Whereas in self-funding, it's pay-as-you-go. You, you hold on to your money until you have to, to spend it. Stop-loss insurance. Uh, there is no stop-loss insurance in a partial self-funded plan, but typically they use a, a fully insured high-deductible health plan. Stop-loss insurance and self-funding is optional. You can, you can either buy or not buy specific and or aggregate stop-loss. In a level-funded plan, stop-loss insurance is required. It's part of the package and, and generally includes both specific and aggregate stop-loss as we've described it. Plan administration. In a partial self-funded plan, you'll see some partial self-funded plans that are self-administered or they will use an independent third-party administrator to administer their plan. In a self-funded plan, typically the stop-loss insurance company requires the use of either a TPA or an ASO. They don't really allow the employer to, to self-pay their claims. Um, uh, in a level-funded plan, the level-funded carrier provides the administration. So it's it's built in and, and, and that, that's what's going on. Uh, Funding-wise, on partial self-funding, it's it can be either fully funded or pay-as-you-go. In a self-funded plan, it's pay-as-you-go. You don't you don't pay a lot of money up front. You just pay the minimum cost of what you need. Whereas in a level funded plan, it's fully funded. You have a premium that, that you have a contribution that looks like a premium. You pay that to the carrier. And again, if you if you have surplus at year end, you get a refund. And then plan designs in a partial self-funded plan. They are semi customized. Um, you know, you're you've got a, a high deductible plan that, you know, is what it is. And then you can have a uh, fully customized HRA, but when you put all that together, we we refer to it as semi-customized. Self-funded plan, as I said before, are fully customized. The the plan designs are are what the employer wants. It's not dictated by the insurance company. And in a level-funded plan, it's it's also semi-customized. There are a lot of different plan design options, but but again, uh, there are limits as to what you can do in level funding. Let me let me talk for a, a couple of minutes about the advisor's role in all of this. First off, as I said, you need to know the alternative funding differences, and that's that that's this chart that that I just showed you. You need to 
you need to know this. You need to have this down pat so that you can talk about it intelligently. So that at the, at the very top of the list, you've got to know those differences. Uh, you're going to be responsible for securing competitive quotes for stop loss insurance and administrative services. Uh, you're going to have some input on the design of the plan benefits with your client. Uh, you should be prepared to review the claim and utilization and provider reports that'll come uh, come out of uh, out of the administrator's office on a periodic basis. You you'll be responsible for reviewing those and letting your client uh, know and see what's going on. Um, most advisors uh, need to be prepared to provide actuarial support. Um, you know, if the if the plan uh, sponsor says I, I I want an an outside actuary to determine our pricing uh, this year for for legal purposes, then then you need to be able to reach out and get that. Uh, some general agencies like ours now provide these consultative services to assist brokers. So we kind of work in the background and in a consultative way. Um, and at that point, I uh, you know I I just want to share with you before we go to our our last uh, polling question, uh, you know where where our lineup is uh, at at Dickerson here, and this is a this is a kind of a commercial part of this. Uh, we have several self-funded health plan partners, uh, ranging from MGUs and stop-loss companies and and um, uh, TPAs and certainly um, uh, captive uh, programs. Um, and it, we we see self-funding might be the right choice if you've got 100 or more employees. You can customize your benefits. You might be able to do a dual choice with an HMO plan. It's going to require a claims experience, and it will end up uh, having the lowest health. Uh, benefit net cost available. Um, the brokers are paid a, a competitive commission or compensation, and um, you know uh, you, you need to be aware of it. And then on the level funded side, we we have a good lineup of of uh, level funded partners. You know, Aetna, Anthem, Cielo Star, Trustmark, United Healthcare, Cigna. These are all players in this market, and and it's typically available to smaller employers with under a hundred, and can go up to uh, 150, 200. Um, so we 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 think that um, you know we're kind of a leader in in what needs to uh, be considered here. Uh, this is a, a request for an alternative funding proposal. If you called us up and said, "Hey, I've got a a prospect that wants to look at self-funding," we would send you this form. We'd we'd ask you to fill it out and and then provide as much of the the items uh, listed in blue on uh, part three on the second page. Uh, of you know copies of their current census and and their billing statements and their their renewals et cetera et cetera so that we can um, you know find them that yes Natalie I just want to um, let you know that we have one minute till twelve thirty and, and just to okay be... okay so we are uh, polling question number three yes. is uh, self funding is most appropriate for which size of employer is it appropriate for a small employer with uh, 10 to 100 employees? Is it appropriate for a large employer with 100 or more employees? Is it appropriate for a mid-sized employer with 50 to 200 employees? So uh, let's go ahead and, and do that. And then, uh, Natalie, uh, can we go ahead and leave the poll open for a minute and, and go into questions? Um, absolutely. But it looks like we don't have very many. We actually don't have any questions. Oh, well, so that's far. a first. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and 
state that it is a reflection of your amazing presentation. Well, I appreciate that. And, and I would just say that if you want more information, uh, you can certainly contact me directly. Uh, there's my, well, I, I don't think my screen is up right now, but uh, we'll, we'll flash that. That's our uh, number to reach me up here in our Roseville, uh, the Sacramento area office. Uh, we work with groups uh, and, and brokers from all throughout California and the Western United States. Um, we've been doing this a while. We have a great team up here who knows their stuff, and uh, I'm very proud to work with them. Um, how are we doing on the poll? Are we about done? Uh, yes, we're about done, but we did get one question in the meantime. Okay. If a captive offers stop loss with a 12 over 12 contract, but claims that they require the TPAs to submit claims within six months and have a terminal liability policy included, would you consider that a strong offer or would you recommend pushing for a 12 over 18 contract? Um, well, I would normally say that buying a 12, 18 contract makes sense. So you've got a six month run out. If you're buying coverage from a, a, a stop loss carrier directly. However, if you're buying stop loss through a captive, uh, and and I, that is a very popular option. And I have a separate uh, deal that we do on captives. But I would just say that if you're part of a captive and the captive says, you know, we have a 12-12 contract, but, but each year we allow for run-in claims from the prior year. And then the captive sits down generally within three months or so after the end of their plan year. And they divvy up to the um, uh, participants. Uh, a refund of uh, captive money. So uh, yeah, I, I can I could go with a captive, uh, especially one that's well managed, has been around, and is consistently refunding uh, money to their members because they're managing things. But yet they have stop loss contracts within the captive that allows for the runout to be covered under the next plan year. So uh, it it goes from being a 12-12 contract to a paid contract in the second year. And there are some provisions in captives to allow for a terminal liability, a runout provision. So it, 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 you have to kind of take each scenario and look at them and see what are the costs and, and what are the benefits and all. But, but I would say that you know if you're not looking at a captive, but definitely look at a 12-18 contract. If you're looking at a captive, then you wanna see what they're what their captive year looks like and what their um, experience is for refunding uh, money back to their captive members. Kind of a long answer to a short, short question, I guess. Any other questions? No, that is it for now. But the poll question, 78% chose large employer, 100% plus employees. Yep, that's correct. Very good. Well, thank you everyone for uh, participating and uh, Again, uh, you can see my screen. That's my contact information. Uh, you can reach me. It's a pretty busy time of the year. So if you if you send a message or leave a voicemail, it may may take me a little time to get back to you because we're putting in some long days and hours right now. But um, I'm happy to chat with you about prospects that you have. And and certainly if you if you uh, didn't understand something that we talked about today, but but we're embarrassed to ask in public. I get that. And I'm happy to chat with you and and uh, answer your questions. 
So if that's it, uh, Natalie, I, I think we're done. Okay, awesome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we do have a webinar coming up in two weeks on November 17th. So don't forget to take a look at our calendar. And of course, like I said, I'm gonna post a link to this webinar on our website within the next 24 hours. And you will all get a copy of the slide deck within the next 24 to 48 hours. That being said, thank you everyone, thank you everyone for joining us. Sorry I ran a little bit late today, but have a great rest of your Thursday and weekend. Thank you everyone. Thank you, Dave. Bye everyone. Oh, okay, bye-bye. Take care.